0: Now, I wonder too about the tech uh, effort. Like, so in the tech sphere, I see a lot of younger entrepreneurs, particularly in my role as an attorney, and we work with a lot of startups, and I'm a um, patent attorney as well. So I'm in tech uh, often early on. And, and I see so many of them not really looking to build something, but to become the next best uh, purchase by some mammoth. You know, tech company will just buy them up. So there's a little bit of a, you know, it's it's not people really trying to build a company or contribute to capitalism. They're playing a little bit of a startup, you know, lottery. Mm-hmm.
1: Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being?
2: Hi, welcome back to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Uh, For episodes 27 and episode 28, we're going to be interviewing Aaron Hedges and Paul Knowlton, and they've written a book called Better Capitalism. Uh, And I'm really looking forward to this this conversation. We have a lot to get into. Uh, Paul, Aaron, just really quick before we get into it, where are you coming? Where are you calling in from?
3: Paul is in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee.
1: All right. Good stuff, gentlemen. So I'm going to kick us off with, I guess, our typical question. So this is the Mindful Wealth podcast, and we're worried about individual success and all the cultural items and group dynamics that affect that success. It's what we end up calling true wealth. So in your opinion, what exactly is true wealth?
0: Uh, I'll start. Uh, it's Paul. And um, th- thanks for the question, Terry. I think true wealth is a balance of the aspects that we are are as complete human beings i need a home i need a in my case a car atlanta does not have much public transportation i there are some things i need but we can also put a cap on those things we can have what um uh what we think is enough right um as a balance i need not just physical things in my wealth bucket but i need relationships i need community i need uh I, I need these intangibles, I suppose that that uh, are, are part of the package for me.
1: What about you, Aaron?
0: Yeah, it's a great question and uh, certainly echo
3: Paul on the idea of enough, which we get into in, in our book quite a bit. I think a lot of it has to do with well-being as well. So again, a holistic sense yeah, you there are certainly material needs that are part of it, but uh, you know having those and I would say enjoying them as opposed to having them but worrying about them or desiring something you still don't have. Uh, so yeah, being able to enjoy uh, a sense of well-being, which includes material and non-material things, is at least part of what comes to my mind with the idea of true wealth.
1: And what do you think might be some of the biggest obstacles that people face on the path to true wealth? Would you have any kind of advice to individuals of how we could achieve that balancing act?
3: Sure, I'll I'll jump in here first, I guess. Um, Again, we had this idea of enough, but um, that's an easy word to say and maybe a simple concept, but we find that it's not the starting point for most individuals, at least that we have talked to, or even our own life experience. You know, the the more default question, in our current mode of uh, capitalism and career and wealth tends to be, you know, how much can I get? You know, how much, how much? And there's always a little bit more, right? And so uh, it may seem simplistic, but just starting with, well, what, what do I actually want? You know, what, what would be satisfying? What would be enjoyable? You know, in so many words, what's enough? Um, that, that change in question is maybe, or that needed change in question, maybe one obstacle. We're just asking the wrong question before we ever even get started. And that question then puts us on a hamster wheel of sorts that, that never really ends as we uh, pursue uh, more rather than enough.
2: Beautiful.
0: For for me, a struggle has been um, recognizing and then rejecting other people's constructs and expectations for me. I mean, I get my parents wanted me to live a quote unquote happy and good life, right? And the teachers and all those people we meet in our journey. But there comes a point where where we've got to be confident enough within ourselves. uh, As I hold my fist to my sort of my abdomen here, we need to be comfortable enough with ourselves. And then congruent enough that the interior person is, is the same as the exterior person, right? I don't want to have that facade up. I've got to, if I, if I don't really don't want to have the Rolex or I don't want to have the latest BMW, although those are nice things, they can be enjoyable. Right. But if I know myself, I don't want them. I don't need to engage in playing that thing. Um, that, 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 so those are the two things, right? It's it's accepting or rejecting what the culture has put on us. And then uh it's easier to accept or reject once we're consistent and congruent people.
2: In the in the very beginning, uh maybe the I don't know, first couple paragraphs of Better Capitalism, you guys quote uh, Gloria Steinem. And I, I really I really enjoy this quote. I don't think I've ever seen it before. You know, the truth may set you free, but first it will piss you off. Uh, <laughs> So right before, right before you begin reframing capitalism, um, introducing mutualism or, or mutual benefit, can you quickly define that uh, mutualism for us? Sure. Yeah, Paul,
3: you want to take that one? That comes from uh, a story in your experience. It's a great quote.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the so so mutualism comes, or this idea of mutual benefit, just comes from this understanding that we are. You know to, to, to borrow from Martin Luther King, Jr, we are inexplicably in a network of mutuality. We are people who are on a planet with each other. The, the object lesson is clear. It, so we are here with each other. If, if, if I think the lesson is we're here to help each other on the journey. For those who can't quite accept that one, let's maybe we can agree negotiate and agree that we're, we're at least here not to hurt each other right? At least let's, you know, if I can't be an island on a world onto myself, and we're an island onto myself for those who want to do that, then that, that at least not interfere with the others. We, we, it's The object lesson is clear. Just look around us and we are we are here with each other. Um, we've got to recognize that capitalism really isn't commercial Darwinism. It's morphed out to be that, and that's construct has come up that way. But that is not the way it is designed was I think we think originally was intended by Adam Smith or some of the others who followed in behind and those who think carefully about it, you know, I don't think that's the way it should be. You,
2: you know, you, uh, um, uh, I want to, I want to deepen a little bit because you do like a, you do sort of a takedown of a lot of, uh, what we read what we think about, what there's a lot of people read Jesus, Adam Smith, Ayn Rand, MLK, Milton Friedman, and you, and you just one by one go through and say, this is kind of what the, some of the common thinking is about it. And, and this is actually how you should think about it. And so you basically do this takedown of the, of a, of a, of an opposition's straw man argument, um, and introduce, Hey, this is really what it is. And that's how you get to this definition of, or this mutualism or this mutual benefit uh, construct. So can you just kind of go through the favorite, you know, is, is your favorite the Jesus takedown or the Iran takedown, which one do you like the best and kind of uh, describe that for us?
3: oh that's a loaded question it's a hard question uh, <laughs> i think part of the reason we we pick those multiple voices because we yeah, we we don't want it to all hinge on one thing we we think there are these multiple voices different places different times that do all kind of aim towards this idea of mutualism as you're saying it partnership um so if it's all right maybe we'll just quickly summarize those since you're making uh, you're bringing attention to that part of the book. But, you know, with Jesus, we often find in many circles that uh, people lean very heavily on the idea of loving the neighbor and caring for others, a, a selflessness, which is truly in the teachings of Jesus. But, you know, when he was asked to summarize the law, he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And we find that too often that as yourself part, for a lot of different reasons, that that gets short shifts, you know, that that gets neglected relative to the, the neighbor part in a lot of Christian circles. And so we just want to say, Hey, both are there neighbor and self, you know, that's, that's mutual. That's both. Um, uh, so that's I a mean, a real brief thing in a nutshell. We could certainly go more into it, but we thought that was an important voice, um, for people who are of Christian faith and just for the influence of Jesus teachings on I mean, Western history in general, much less the larger world. It's, it's so short, but both parts matter. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't, don't forget either half of that. Um, then we do Adam Smith, uh, which Paul, uh, did the heavy lifting there?
0: If I can jump in on that one, and and, uh, and I'll get turned it back over to Aaron. But 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 that's probably my favorite one. It was my favorite one is more Adam Smith because a couple things happened there. One, I've got these two brilliant nieces, both are Ivy League graduates, um, and and finance, and and they're one of them in private equity right now. She will make more money this year than I probably have made my whole life. But when at graduation, I said, well we somehow the conversation got on to Adam Smith at some point, maybe wealth of nations. I said, well, did you know he wrote a book before wealth of nations? Mm-hmm. And she just looked at me dumbfounded and like, no, and this is not a take that on my knees. Right. But, but, but it was like, I was shocked, I was surprised. And, and then I asked the other one purposefully graduated at a different Ivy League school a year or two later. And she'd never heard of theory of moral sentiment. And and, and so the really just opened up a, a world to me right now that I'm thinking that all these people spout off Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations like they ever read it, I'm thinking they never read it, you know, maybe they read the bumper sticker and that's it. <laughs> so that really drove me to a deeper understanding uh, um, and myself included, right? I'd heard a couple things from college or high school classes about Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations, Nation, but I think so many people spout off like probably they do about Jesus or, Ayn, or uh, Ayn Rand, but they never actually read the source material. That's why we bring in so much of the source material. We want people to hear what we're saying, but we want them to read for themselves. We want them to just get it and understand it themselves. It's, it's, it's better. They should convince themselves than
2: us. Can I, can I ask you to focus on uh, just, I want, I want you to play both sides of the Ayn Rand piece. <laughs> I, I, that's the one I hear like so much as the, as negative, And I'd love to hear the positive side. Uh,
0: that's, sure. Let's tag yeah. team that one. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, we can,
3: we can take a stab at that. Um, yeah, she's the one that tends to generate the most heated reactions, the most heated. I mean, for and again, yes, she has some diehard fans and some diehard opponents, too. Um, and in fact, when we first set out to write the book, we we really were thinking, but well, we're going to have to dismantle Ayn Rand in order to arrive at partnership. Um, and as we again, as possible, actually started reading, you know, the actual material um it's kind of interesting what the what she says for herself as opposed to what you hear said about her or for her in secondhand and thirdhand you know interpretations um you know we were able to focus on because she herself identified I mean, she wrote a ton of stuff just thousands thousands of pages but she identified John Galt's speech in her novel Alice Shrugged as quote you know the perfect fictional representation of her philosophy so that's helpful um, among this vast library of literature, hey, we can focus here. It's still a long speech, but that's a really helpful keystone. Um, And when we read that, there's a number of quotes in there that talk about, you know, not viewing each other with a cannibal's lust. That's a quote from Ayn Rand in the speech that she says perfectly represents her philosophy, not viewing other people with a cannibal's lust. And so we often hear about, you know, dog eat dog, and somehow Ayn Rand is the the justification for that. Um, And she certainly speaks of this self strongly. Uh she she's not uh she's opposite of Jesus. And where we think, well, maybe she's so much about the self and then the neighbor gets lost in the shuffle. But again, when you read her, she talks about aligning interests, not taking advantage of people, being a trader, as she calls, we'd say a partner who seeks mutual value in the exchange. Um so somewhat to our surprise initially, but but her actual words and what she identifies as the best representation of her philosophy speaks of mutuality uh, and against, you know cannibalism of fellow human beings very powerful language
1: yeah guys that's like i i really love that because i feel like so often you know when uh, people kind of pick and choose the things that they've heard from the source text like you say the fact of just being like have you like have you actually read it and have you actually sat with the complexity of those things because very often it's the complexity that gets lost in the sound bites exactly Yeah. Um, And so I had a question for you guys uh, about metrics. And, you know, I hear so often, uh, you know, what you can measure, you can improve, right? Like, that's something that we hear a lot. And um, so in better capitalism, you kind of make the point that our sole metric, maybe in the neoliberal era has become shareholder value. And, you know, the primacy of, of capacity to generate dollars, like basically an economic, but like a purely financial kind of an economic way of measuring success. Um, how do you think, in a nutshell, could I get you guys to frame how this measurement has channeled and structured the way we organize society, so our economic activity?
0: It's not just a metric, uh, Terry, it's become the driver, right? It is It is. It is a, a measure which now morphed into the the head of the sphere, and the, or the point of the sphere. It, it is then to our society, it has changed us from a, uh, a market or uh, a capitalist economy to a capitalist society where everything now has a dollar value. Every interaction has some dollar of value placed on it. I generalized you know, a little bit, but not much. I mean, uh, you know, it seems as though you almost can't do somebody a favor without them, okay, well, let me, let me pay for that. Or, or you know, they can't accept that we are humans interacting with each other. And it doesn't have to be every measure of what we do is based on the economic value or a dollar value. It's my way of seeing it from that that question. Do you have Mm -hmm. another thought or additional thought here?
1: Well, maybe I could just ask you to like go into a little bit more detail. I don't know, I didn't want to interrupt you, but like You know how how historically did that come to be? Like, where did that come from? I mean, I, I know I, I listened to a YouTube interview where I felt like you did a little bit of a, of the history of that, uh, Paul. But like, you know, it's it's we. This is the the water that we now swim in. But it things were not always thus. So, how did that come about?
0: From my perspective, it's it's this September 1970, Martin uh, Milton Friedman New York Times article where. He lays out his ethic. It's just simply his ethic which uh, uh, which was sort of more, bald assertion and some bullying um that said this is the what the purpose of 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 capitalism and corporations more specifically is to be is to maximize shareholder value there's i think we can draw a bright line right there uh in a lot of different a lot of different uh, ways uh, up till that point uh for example uh, General Motors was considering board members on which had things about community concern and economics. This uh, uh, sorry, environmental economics. This was in the late 1960s, and they shut those things down just because of the basically the bullying. Uh, uh, I think approach that Milton Friedman took in order to get his position across. We, we are not like all anti Milton Friedman, right? The, the man's got lots going on for him, but it's just this narrow issue that we we pick with this because it's got. Such a Molotov cocktail effect on the rest of the country; it just exploded from that point. So, so I think that's a that that's a critical shift for our 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 economics and our, our psyche uh, in the United States is that we all grabbed a hold of that one man's narrow ethic in this one condition, and we just we let it roll out. Right, and the the title of that article I think is
3: the social. Uh the social responsibility of business is to increase profit. I, I think that's that's the headline title of the article. And that pretty well sums it up. So to the earlier point, maybe you didn't even read the whole article, but you got the bumper sticker. You got the headline and and it took, you know, it really took. Um, and, you know, Terry, to your question about how does it show up? I mean, one of the ways it happens is the notion of an externality that, you know, in a, in a corporation, we can basically just not count as a cost something that, we don't want to count as a cost. You know, if our metric is increasing, you know, bottom line on a profit and loss statement, and you know, all these chemicals that we would need to pay to dispose of are expensive. Well, then we just dump them outside somewhere. And hey, it didn't hurt our metric. You know, it was damaging to everybody in the area, but it didn't count, you know. And so that's, I mean, just one example of not counting and therefore, you know, facilitating unhelpful tendencies and even destructive behavior because, hey, you know, it didn't didn't show up on the the one metric everybody's looking at.
2: Have you ever imagined if that article was never written? You know, if, if 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 we didn't start off in 1970 with that as the key functional measurement of everything if that never happened, what might have come about? Have you ever just imagined that and no. just? that's your second book I think that would be that
0: would be an awesome sort of fantasy I don't use the word awesome too often because it's a bit overused but that would be a nice mm. that would be a nice world to live in I think uh we, we may have a, other challenges but yeah that if that ethic wasn't driving everybody and and to your point Terry about the what do we swim in I mean it's it's the cradle it starts in the cradle and, and we we are just Evolved uh, in that in our culture, and then of course, um, you know, America does a great job exporting lots of things. We are we are red, white, and blue Americans, uh, but but we do export some things that can be dangerous, uh, and and that is one of those things that we have exported over time. Uh, that has I think proven dangerous is this idea of, of of and that single metric of maximizing profit.
1: Mm-hmm. And Other so metrics, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, my, my question then would be, like, I guess you guys have put some thought into what different kind of metrics we might begin to look at and how we might begin to integrate that into our way of thinking, because it's one thing to say, okay, you know, we should try to focus on like environment i think the environment is like a kind of an easy one right and like that's something that's become more on people's radar because like that's kind of easier to, to quantify but like what other kind of things might we look at as metrics that might shift how we do business
3: yeah we've got a couple um we like the idea of an, uh, an enough ratio or a different partnership ratios uh, we have some of this in the book some of it is ongoing thinking and uh, yeah we, we need to develop it further but now, one example is in the idea of just corporate finance, you know, how much cash reserve is enough? Now, again, that that applies to individuals, certainly, as we opened this podcast talking about, it applies to companies too. You know, you, you do need some cash reserve, it'd be irresponsible not to plan for contingencies and weather, you know, the rainy day, so to speak. Um, but there is a point where it you know, you will never use that, you know? And, and we set that mark basically at six months. If you have more than six months of reserve, you can run your whole business with no revenue for six months. That's plenty, that's surely enough. Um, so beyond that, you may have piles of cash that are effectively worthless. Like you you have devalued that asset because it's, uh, it's never gonna be used. It's just gonna, you know, sit somewhere. It's like cash in a mattress that never is gonna get put into practice. Um, so that's one, I mean, one metric is, hey, have, have enough, but at six months, do some, you know, invest in your employees, invest in even dividends, you know, actually give it to the shareholders as opposed to just sitting in the giant corporate mattress. Um, there's a, a lot of things you could do uh, once you have enough. Another one that we've looked at, maybe not as much in depth, is the ratio of executive pay to either median employee pay or average employee pay. Um, which, following World War II, was a pretty modest multiplier. You know, the CEOs, the executives had, you know, a few times more income than than the typical line worker, so to speak. It's not uncommon now that that would be—I mean, a hundred times, multiple hundreds of times—that a CEO rakes in compared to a worker. And so that's where we're saying there's got to be some kind of partnership ratio here, where it's not even about the dollar amount, but just are you acting like you're all on the same team? <laughs> And, you know, if, if it's good times, it's good times for everybody. Or if you're tightening the belt or you're tightening it for everybody, again, mutual. Um, so that, I don't know if we have a real firm number on that one, but conceptually, we, we're working in that direction to kind of figure out how, how are we really showing that we're all in the same boat as opposed to massive winners while others are, you know, below the poverty line.
0: We had suggested actually for CEOs uh, because some of those ratios are, are are in the thousands now, right? Some CEOs are paid more than a thousand times the average uh, employee. And of course, you know, pick your superstar CEO. None of them are worth more than a thousand times uh, the average. It is the, the organization as a whole that, that, succeeds. And yes, wonderful for he or she who is sits in the CEO role and has an organization that's running well, they should be rewarded. Um, but we think perhaps 40 times is probably a reasonable ratio for the average uh, employee versus the highest paid uh, uh, executive. That's not an unreasonable number. Back at as Aaron mentions, right after World War II, that number was in the single digits. The CEO was making six, maybe seven times the average uh, employee salary. The um, other metrics, I I like what Dan Price does at uh, Gravity Payments. Uh, He has metrics which include um, uh, things that he would like to reward or things that he thinks provides for uh, a stable employment environment and these are things with input from his employees, not just what he's dictated, right, but uh, uh, amount of uh, employee uh, student debt that they may be carrying, single family ownership or at least uh, home ownership. this uh, new family starts. these are again not things that he's like dictated, but it's things that speak to the whole well-being of everyone in the organization. So to your point, sorry, we, we, we work on what we measure. So we want to measure those things we'll work on them and we'll find a way to pay them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know, like, let's say um, my brother's like a tech entrepreneur. Right. And like, I know that they're worried about like their net promoter score. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so I don't think that it's, it's necessarily correct to characterize like some of these firms as being like wholly. I don't know. I don't know. Is it too black of a vision to say that it's only totally economically driven when obviously like, you know, in tech for sure, employee employee turnover, like if it's a revolving door, you're not going to be able to be beholden to whatever kind of profitability you want to be beholden to. And like, I guess if I could sort of like poke at that a little bit, I mean, I think one of the the arguments that gets made on the other side is that like, you know the the it's the rising tide argument, right? That like if we're working towards profitability, like presumably you have to keep your employees happy because if there's a revolving door, it's not going to work. Or like if you're Amazon, let's say the miracle of Amazon is this incredible supply chain that all of a sudden we all survived COVID and things none of us starve to death, right? At least not in North America. And so like, if, if one looks at that and say like, what's, you know, there is a a consumer benefit side to our system where, I mean, there have been real gains. I don't know what you would say to that. In that the fact that there are, I mean, there are in a sense, other things that are circulating in the, in the ecosystem.
0: Yeah. uh,
3: Yeah. I think it's a fair point. And that's, um, that's that's why we write about better capitalism. We we think capitalism has very much to offer. It you know it can be a, a hugely value creating uh, way of doing things. Uh, it can be distorted you know and done poorly, and it's easy to focus and harp on those you know, flaws. But yeah, we, we think I mean capitalism, economics and well is about creating value. Um, in fact, if you don't create value. It erodes over time. We talk about uh, frictional costs. Every exchange involves some loss. I mean, it takes time to do anything, even to click on a computer screen or on a phone. Most it took you time to do that. And then it took time for the thing to be shipped. So there, there's always uh, friction, so to speak, economically, just like there's always friction physically. You know, things don't just happen. There's there's a cost to doing business. So we've got to do business that adds value, you know. Uh, you know, Paul said earlier, let's not harm each other. But even if it's just neutral, that's a losing game over time. You know, because you're trading back and forth, and and the friction erodes as the circulation happens. So, absolutely, we we are uh, we are for profit. We want profit to happen. We want it to be truly profitable. Um, you know, what what doesn't work is to say, well, and, you know, your side of the boat is sinking, or their side of the boat is sinking. It's it's only one boat ultimately. So, again, we have to look at all the costs. There's no such thing as an externality. But what yeah. are all the costs and all the benefits? I mean, the whole ledger, so to speak, and uh, work towards maximizing the value creation and minimizing the harm uh, is always going to be a mix. But let's, let's intentionally emphasize the, the value-adding aspects of this and, and, and resist the, the value-degrading aspects of it
1: yeah, I love that. I will like that should be the title of this episode. There is no externality <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
0: Uh, I, I'm concerned for Amazon with the, the narrow aspect of the the efforts to unionize, right? So I think when there's an effort to unionize and it's uh, um I'm not an expert in this area, or, or I should say particularly with the Amazon question, but I, I just as I read my econ- my my copy of The Economist and I, I see what's happening there, you know, I think that's a bit of a smoke where the if, if the if the employer's not treating the employees as much as possible as, as in as a partnership perspective, the people see the inequity of the imbalance of the wealth, and I think unions are probably then an answer—not the only answer, but an answer to leveling the playing field. Um, so, so I, I think there's a little bit of, you know, concern there when when you've got unionizing efforts. Again, not that unions—I uh, I can be a fan. It's just that's the the the, the struggle there with those kinds of situations or that situation. Now, I wonder too about the tech uh, effort. Like, So in the tech sphere, I see a lot of younger entrepreneurs, particularly in my role as an attorney, and we work with a lot of startups, and I'm a um, patent attorney as well. So I'm in tech uh, often early on. And and I see so many of them not really looking to build something, but to become the next best uh, purchase by some mammoth you know, tech company will just buy them up. So there's a little bit of a, you know, it's it's not people really trying to build a company or contribute to capitalism. They're playing a little bit of a startup, you know, lottery, mm-hmm. trying to bring attention to themselves, get their app or their programmer or their platform sucked up and they can, you know, all retire at 22 or 26, you know, whatever it is. So so th- there's, there's that question I bring in too. Are they really trying to contribute to a solid capitalist society or are they running a kind of a little of a lottery
2: scheme? Mm-hmm. Scale and sell, scale and sell.
1: Yeah. Right. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, th- I mean, I think it's a, a, like a really great point because I think that's where like, you know, I'm in real estate and like, it's when you see the speculative manipulation start mm-hmm. to come in, that's when you know that something has become corrupted and like, maybe it's heading into some sort of a, like a bubble territory or something because, that's it it ceases to be about the actual value created and starts to be about the financial manipulation and thank you for joining us for episode 27 of the mindful wealth podcast if you enjoyed this conversation with paul knowlton and aaron hedges don't hesitate to share it subscribe like or just shoot us an opinion of what you thought of some of their ideas